This is Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine, and I'm John Wiener. Now it's time for sports talk. Remember how in 2016, an NFL quarterback named Colin Kaepernick began a series of quiet protests on the field, at first refusing to stand for the national anthem. He was protesting against the epidemic of police shootings of African Americans. And remember how his action then taking a knee five years ago became the symbol of resistance to racial injustice in America. That political movement in sports is the subject of a new book by Dave Zirin, Of course, he's sports editor for The Nation and host of our sister podcast at The Nation, Edge of Sports. He's written many books, including A People's History of Sports in the United States. He's been a regular guest on MSNBC, CNN, and ESPN. His new book is called The Kaepernick Effect. We reached him today at home in Washington, D.C. Dave Zirin, welcome back. Oh, it's great, great, great to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Well, Colin Kaepernick was kicked out of professional football for taking a knee, but hundreds, if not thousands, of young athletes followed his example and took a knee at their own games during the national anthem. Many of them faced ostracism, condemnation, and even death threats. And all of that came in a couple of years before George Floyd was murdered by a cop in Minneapolis. So Let's start this story at the beginning, August 2016. The San Francisco 49ers were about to play the Packers. This was a preseason game. Who was Colin Kaepernick at that point? Colin Kaepernick at the time was the backup quarterback for the San Francisco 49ers. Uh, He's coming off injuries. There was a new coach in town. It wasn't the best point in his career for the quarterback who only a few years earlier had led the San Francisco 49ers to the Super Bowl. Colin Kaepernick was also somebody who was absolutely disgusted by the state of the United States and particularly the issue of police violence. Uh, Like many people in that summer of 2016, he was becoming really plugged in to what was taking place in terms of the Black Lives Matter movement. If you remember over that summer, there were these viral videos of uh, Alton Sterling and Philando Castile uh, being killed by police. Philando Castile uh, meant a lot to me in particular because that happened in my hometown of St. Paul. In fact, Philando Castile went to the same high school that I did, St. Paul Central. You remember the story. He was stopped for a broken taillight. His girlfriend was next to him in the front seat. Her four-year-old daughter was in the back seat. The cop then shot and killed him while his girlfriend screamed and recorded the whole thing on cell phone video. It was the next month that Kaepernick started his symbolic protest. Now, was he well-known as a political activist at that point? Uh, No, and this was at a time where dozens of athletes were starting to speak out, really starting in 2012 after the murder of Trayvon Martin by George Zimmerman in Sanford, Florida. That's really really where you start to see this wave of athletes start to use their hyper-exalted, brought-to-you-by-Nike platform to say something about the world. And Colin Kaepernick had yet to be counted among those legions of athletes who were starting to speak out. And yet in that moment, August 2016 preseason game, Colin Kaepernick was being asked, as they're always asked in the NFL, to stand at attention for the national anthem. And he just had enough. And so what he did without sending a tweet, without sending a press release, without sending so much as a carrier pigeon, decided that he was just going to sit behind his teammates on the bench with his towel over his head. 
And no one even really noticed that he was doing this. And it might have even become just a one week story, except a reporter named Steve Weish, who's a, t- a terrific sports writer. He noticed what Colin Kaepernick was doing and made a beeline for him. And he had known Colin since Colin played in college and uh, had been following his social media and had noticed that Colin had been posting some stories about these police shootings. And so he went up to him and said, hey, what was up with you not standing for the anthem? Can you talk to me about that? And that's when Colin responded like a like, like a dam breaking and him saying, you know, there there are people dead in the street and police officers are getting away with murder. And that really started the the whole process uh, that led to him taking a knee and all these other athletes taking a knee. Uh, It was really that moment. And the response was pretty quick, uh, too. Donald Trump at that point was running for president. What did he say about Colin Kaepernick? Well, his first comments was that he should find another country to live in, which, of course, to his base, you know, that you hear... Donald Trump saying that about a black quarterback in the National Football League. I mean, he's basically saying go back to Africa. I mean, it's a highly racialized statement and has been in this country uh, for, I mean, frankly, like 150 years Yeah. Uh, as white racists have dealt with black discontent. And, you know, Trump sees seizing on this controversy and turning it into an election issue. What it did was it, it polarized. And it divided and it turned what Colin Kaepernick was doing into a cause celebre on the left. And it turned him into an object of of relentless hatred on the right. And then there were kind of the liberal liberals in the middle, especially the NFL officials. Their line was, I support his goals, but not his methods. And what happened to Colin Kaepernick's career as an NFL quarterback? Well, first, we got us before uh, the end of that season and everything that's occurred in the years since then. uh, Colin Kaepernick, we got to say, spent that 2016 season taking a knee before every single game, whether they were at home in the friendly confines of the Bay Area in San Francisco or whether they were on the road in very hostile environs in the American South or you know, other places. I mean, let's remember what Malcolm X said about the American South really starts at the Canadian border because uh, one, one of the most vociferous anti-Kaepernick reactions was in Buffalo, just south of the Canadian border. So Colin Kaepernick basically engaged in a four-month protest against police violence and racial inequity. And he also started this process of taking a knee, a gesture that he Uh, conjured with a a former NFL player and Green Beret named Nate Boyer. And it was Boyer's logic who said, he said, you know what? People are so angry at you for sitting during the anthem. Why don't you try taking a knee? Because that will show dissent, but also proper respect. And they won't be able to say, oh, he's doing this against the troops or he's doing this because, you know, he's a anti-American zealot. But their calculation was very off because once he took a knee, it immediately became something more iconic. And Colin Kaepernick was on the cover of Time magazine. And it also bequeathed a language to a generation of young activist athletes that they could follow this lead, that they could take a knee as well. That if they were upset about the world, here was something concrete that they could do. And the great thing about your book, The Kaepernick Effect, is that it's mostly not about professional athletes. Chapter one 
is not about the NFL. It's about high school. And I have to say, it's not easy to find out what's going on at American high schools. You did find out. You found out a lot. For instance, you found out what was going on in Brunswick, Ohio. Yes. I spoke to a young man named Rodney Axon. And first, I got to say, I started writing this book at the start of the pandemic. And it's really hard to talk to high school students on the phone normally. It's hard for me to talk to my own 17-year-old daughter on the phone. Like if I call her up, she'll say, what, is it an emergency? And I'll say, no, I was just calling. And she'll say, oh, text next time. It's just a whole different way they have of communicating. Phone calls are strictly for if you're trapped underneath a large piece of furniture. But what, what I found was that these young folks were really bored. They were home. You know, everybody was on shutdown at the start of the pandemic. We all remember what that was like. You'd be scared to venture out of the house for vegetables and fruits. And here were these young people bored out of their minds. And here I am, this writer calling them, tracking them down. And they were just ready to talk. Hmm. So they really opened up to me and I'll never be able to express my gratitude enough for how open they were about what they went through. And one of those folks was Rodney Axon in Brunswick, Ohio. And he told me a very personal story about a family, his family growing up in Cleveland and his family deciding, let's move to this predominantly white suburb of Brunswick where it'll be safer. There'll be better schools, better opportunity. You know, sounds a lot like something we used to call the American dream. But what he found being out in Brunswick as one of the few black people and one of the few black families is that he was subject to harassment by police. He would hear people use racial slurs. Uh, When he was on the football team, his own teammates would use the N-word very casually. I should be clear, his white teammates would Mm -hmm. use it very casually. And he had just had enough. And when you couple that with the existence of a movement and then add the special spice of Colin Kaepernick taking a knee, he saw something that he could do. And when Colin Kaepernick took that knee, everything just clicked with Rodney Axon. And he knew what he needed to do. So he was the first person to take a knee after Kaepernick. And the backlash was very intense and very severe. I mean, so bad that uh, he got death threats. His family got death threats. Death threats came into the school. And he started walking his uh, little sister to elementary school every morning because he was worried about her personal safety. And I think one of the things about Rodney that's so remarkable is that Despite going through all of that, despite being then ostracized by his team, despite the fact that his coach didn't have his back, I mean, he he has no regrets whatsoever. None. Uh, The kind of the world capital of high school football is Texas. And you found out about Beaumont, Texas, about a guy named Jalen Parkerson. Oh, yeah. I just was talking to uh, Jalen's mom just the other day. And I got to say, one of the rewarding things about this book has been keeping up with the people who who did this work. Um, Jalen right now is a high school star playing in Beaumont, Texas. Uh, he's a quarterback, uh, which in Texas is, is very, you know. Doesn't that, get that's, much better than that in high school. Yes. And when he was in middle school, his team decided that they were going to take a knee. And his entire middle school team, the Beaumont Bulls, And when they took a knee, 
And these are middle school kids. They just saw what Kaepernick did. They're like, well, we also hate racism. They were in a community where there had been racist incidents. One town over was the headquarters of the KKK in the region. So they decided to take a knee. And the result was the people who ran the league were so freaked out. They not only canceled Jalen's team, but they canceled the entire league. I mean, talk about cancel culture. And, and, And what's what's so interesting about that to me is, you know, they you can buy a T-shirt just about anywhere in Texas that says the big three, faith, family, and football. Yeah. And yet what you see is that there's actually a big four. And the big four, number four, is white supremacy. <laughs> and that was actually number one, because if it was really just about football, family, and faith, you'd let the kids play. Yeah. Uh, but clearly that was too much for them. So, so the team and the league got completely scuttled but what happened after that was really amazing, uh, really amazing. Um, it, because we live in this viral age of social media, uh, this small town where this injustice took place, it somehow got the ear of some NFL players. And they wrote some checks and underwrote the creation led by the parents of these kids of an entirely new league <laughs> for Beaumont and for the kids. And it's it's a remarkable story of solidarity. It's also a remarkable, to me, revelatory story about courage in the face of repression. And my goodness, I think a lot of these stories, John, are like the canary in the coal mine for everything we're dealing with in 2021. I mean, think about that story I just told you about the canceling of the Beaumont Bulls in Texas five years ago. And now think about Texas today, where they're canceling transgender athletes, they're canceling voting rights. Uh, they're canceling re- women's reproductive rights. And I think that showed like the, the very autocratic, very repressive nature of the Texas Republican Party. And frankly, like the, the out to lunch nature of the Texas Republican Party. It was it was all on display if people had cared to look in Beaumont, Texas. And there's one more uh, story of high school football I, I want you to tell. And that's a story about Minneapolis, Minneapolis North. Uh, high school. This was a city, of course, where Derek Chauvin killed George Floyd. But four years before that, the football team was taking a knee. Yeah, and went on to win the championship. It actually brought the team together. I mean, and you know, that story meant a great deal to me, John, because I, I went to McAllister College uh, in St. Paul, Minnesota. And so even before the murder of George Floyd, my eyes were very much on Minneapolis, St. Paul with regards to taking a knee and um, how it affected people. And, you know, part of doing that story was also, I think, really important because people think of Minnesota as a blue state. Yeah. People think of it as Minnesota nice is a phrase I'm sure you're very familiar with. Oh, yeah. And one you embody, sir. So let me say that. <laughs> Thank you. But but it, it's it's there's also an underbelly. And uh, in the underbelly, there's there's a lot of racism. And, and that really came out when these young people took a knee. And that's one of the things I wanted to show with this book is that it really doesn't matter red state, blue state, like these kinds of ways of understanding the country actually aren't entirely helpful. There may be helpful a little bit, but not really, especially not in an era of profound gerrymandering and and disproportionate representation. Like what, what you have instead in this country is I think a battle between let's call it Donald Trump's America and let's call it Colin Kaepernick's America. Yeah. It's like people, people who believe 
that the only response to the fact that we have a young generation that's more demographically diverse and less tolerant of intolerance than any generation in the history of the United States, the only response is repression. While there's another America that says, no, this is the future, we need to actually support these young people as they try to shape their world. And I think that that is the number one fissure. So when people say to me, Colin Kaepernick polarized America, I always say, what are you talking about? Racism and inequality has polarized America, not Colin Kaepernick. He's like the person pointing at the burning building and saying that there's a fire. Your stories about high school football players are totally great. And you have a lot of amazing stories about high school cheerleaders, cheerleaders leading protests against police racism. What's your favorite of those? Well, first, let me just say, like, I knew I couldn't tell every story of people who took a knee because there's so many. So I wanted what I told to be representative of what took place in the country as a whole. So that's why there's so many stories of women athletes and male athletes, because that's representative of what took place. Similarly, cheerleaders uh, really did step up at this moment. And in one of the stories I tell, I mean, it's in uh, a place called Storm Lake, Iowa. I mean, this is Steve King country. Uh, and at a school out there in Storm Lake, uh, this, this incredible young woman, um, she made the decision to take a knee as well as start the school's first black student union. And this caused all kinds of waves at her school. And eventually she felt she had to leave the school. I mean, she was effectively forced out of the school. And I think these are the kinds of stories that I want to tell uh, because people have to know that there were consequences. And let's talk about uh, some of the women athletes in your, your college chapter is a huge chapter. I think my favorite stories there are about the women athletes. For example, the UC Santa Barbara women's basketball team. This is a Division I team, six black players. Tell us about them. Well, one of them, of course, was the woman I, I interviewed for the book. Her name was Mikhail uh, Wright. And uh, Mikhail told me this story. And it's to me, this is a great story of the knee itself. One of the things you see that's a common thread in a lot of these tales is that when these players talk about taking a knee, uh, the result can be really, really volcanic at the level of the administrative level. Yeah. And Sometimes you feel like these administrators, whether we're talking about principals or athletic directors or school presidents, sometimes, or coaches as well, of course, sometimes you feel like it's not even that they're against what the aims are of the movement. But like you said at the start of this interview, they occupy that sort of middle mushy space. And in that middle mushy space, you've got something <laughs> that where they're so terrified of what people taking that knee will provoke among boosters, among alumni, among parents. And so they try to effectively, it's so interesting, like they try to bribe the kids, not with money, but with protest alternatives. So they say things like, how about we make you Black Lives Matter t-shirts and you could wear those? Or how about we make you some black sashes and you can wear those? How about you just hold hands or link arms during the anthem? But the terror about taking that knee is something that was experienced in Santa Barbara. And Mikhail, who I spoke with at length about it, uh, she told me that years later, like when George Floyd was killed and you had the largest protests in the history of the United States, her coach sent her this apology letter. Mm. Uh, about like not understanding what 
had taken place and feeling like she understood more then. But, you know, in a, in a lot of cases, you know, there's there are people who are really white people, to be clear, who are finally reckoning with what it means to be black or brown in this country is as one person said to me, I believe her name was Alyssa Parker. One of the stories in the book, she said, if I made you feel uncomfortable by taking a knee for two minutes, well, now you know how I feel every day in this community. And I want to talk about major league baseball very much on our minds here in uh, Los Angeles uh, this week. Baseball, where the players and the owners are the most conservative of all uh, of all sports, and where the proportion of African Americans is smallest. Lots of people of color from the Caribbean and Latin America in baseball, but very few black people born in the USA. The Dodgers, of course, first to integrate Major League Baseball, famously Jackie Robinson, 1947. They now have an African-American manager, Dave Roberts, and an African-American superstar, Mookie Betts, who's from Nashville. Mookie famously took a knee during the playing of the national anthem at the season opener in 2020. But Mookie was the only Dodger to take a knee. Uh, But... Cody Bellinger and Max Muncy, who are white players, stood on either side of him with a hand on Mookie's shoulders, showing solidarity. Now, that was good, but I had to wonder, why didn't they take a knee too? Isn't racism, isn't the problem really the white people, not the black people? So let's talk for a minute about about baseball, about the Dodgers, about Mookie Betts and Cody Bellinger and Max Muncy and the whole picture that that shows. Yeah, I mean, it shows that uh, we need better anti-racist strategy among white people, which is why I interviewed several white people who had taken a knee in the book and then one who just raised her fist and now feels guilt that she didn't take the step of taking a knee. And I just find that so fascinating that everybody understands. It's so ubiquitous and universalized at this point that everybody understands that if you take a knee, you are making a statement. You are crossing a Rubicon. And there's really no going back at that point. And I think for white folks, it's like they have to realize that there's no risk in putting your hand on somebody's shoulder, but there is risk in taking that knee. And the risk, I wish this wasn't the case, John, but it's the risk that's what gives the protest power. In the end, you turn to another well-known sports activist, John Carlos, and asked him what he thought about everything that's happened after Colin Kaepernick engaged in his silent protest. Yeah, I mean, John Carlos, somebody who raised his fist in 1968 at the Olympics. I mean, he had something very important to say. Like he, he I was talking to him amidst the fires of the of the George Floyd demonstrations. And 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 he said to me, we are the positive force. The young generation is going to show us the way. We need to figure out how to support them organizationally, politically, ideologically. Like we, we have to be able to support them as they try to build this new world. And to hear that from John Carlos, someone who's been part of the struggle for over 50 years, I mean, that's something I'm going to keep with me the rest of my life. Dave Zirin, his wonderful new book is The Kaepernick Effect, Taking a Knee, Changing the World. Dave, thanks so much for this book. And thanks for talking with us today. Oh, thank you so much for having me, John. You've been listening to Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine. You can hear more interviews like this one at thenation.com 
And you can subscribe to Start Making Sense at iTunes Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Thank you.